we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. You say amen to that? Amen. This is the song. This is the, this is the main uh, theme of Psalm chapter 40. It's about trusting the Lord who holds the future. Now, we're starting a new series, and this will run for the whole month of May. Uh, if you've been coming here every Sunday, you hear me preach about the story of Israel. Um, it is at this stage in the history of Israel that they have made a big mess because they have rebelled big time. It's not that it's their first time to rebel against the Lord, but they have institutionalized rebellion in the sense that they asked for a king, and that has institutionalized their rebellion. Now, according to the Bible, they will suffer the consequences of of their decision for asking the wrong king because Saul, the first king in Israel, will reign in Israel for 40 years. And this is reminiscent of the, another punishment in the history of Israel where the Israelites were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. And so the reign of Saul is reminiscent of that 40 years in the wilderness. It's another rebellion. What we aim to do in this series, what we aim to learn from the series is to know exactly what it means to be a man after God's own heart and what it takes to be a man after God's own heart. And by implication, we would like to know what is the opposite of a man after God's own heart. The title or the theme for this whole month of May is A King After God's Own Heart. Our text today is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you have your Bibles with you, an app, a Bible app, uh, an iPad, or a physical Bible, you will open it with me, Some chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 15. In this chapter, the narrator will squeeze in three words that are very important because this will be the focus of chapter 15. Words like rebellion, divination, and idolatry. Now, I'm not sure if this is the first time you will be reading this, but I hope this will give clarity to chapter 15 of the book of Samuel. Let me preface this sermon by going back to chapter 14, the last verse, that is verse 52. It's uh, having a little bit of feedback. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 52. There was a hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Now, if this is the introduction to chapter 15, you can almost predict that there's something really wrong about chapter 15. It looks like we have a very insecure king or that he's trying to play his cards well. He's trying to attach all the valiant men to himself. But to a casual reader like me or you, this doesn't sound good at all. If you read the book of Samuel especially beginning from verse 13, chapter 14 and chapter 15, it looks like his sins are piling up. I'm talking about uh, King Saul. In chapter 13, he broke the protocol when he offered the sacrifice because the uh, offering of sacrifice only authorized by the prophet. He did not wait for Samuel. He broke the protocol. In chapter 14, he made an unnecessary vow that led to the sins of the people by eating meat with blood. Again, he broke the protocol. And in chapter 15, this will be the last straw 
in baseball, we have three strikes. This will be his third strike because in chapter 15, he will totally lose the kingship or his throne. So let's read a couple of verses, verses 1 to 3, 1 Samuel chapter 15. It says, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Now reading this verse, I'm reminded of what happened this week. Anyone seen the coronation of King Charles? Anyone? That's good. <laughs> it was, it's more than an hour of, of procession and protocol. The best part was when I was watching it, there was a commentator on the TV where it's saying that the best part, the most important part of the coronation was the anointing of King Charles. So there was a sort of canopy that enveloped him and he was anointed with oil. The oil was prayed over. It's, it's not the crowning itself. It's not the giving of the scepter. It's the anointing because that means a lot. And that goes back all the way to the book of Samuel. This is what, what Samuel said. So the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. What's interesting here is that at the very end of the coronation when the crown was about to be placed in his head, on his head, the Archbishop of Canterbury prayed and addressed God as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And King Charles ad admitted that and confessed that, that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is exactly what Samuel was telling Saul. He was anointed king over his people, but he has to listen to the word of the Lord. And then he says, thus says the Lord of hosts. What does it mean, the Lord of hosts? The Lord of hosts is like saying the Lord of the armies, the Lord of all the armies in the world. So king of kings and Lord of lords is an appropriate title for God being the Lord of hosts. And Samuel said, I have noted what the Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now here's the command. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now if you're reading this for the first time, you might be thinking, this is R18. Why would God command Saul to annihilate the entire Amalek nation? Now this is not the first time God God punished uh, the people uh, in Canaan. This is not the first time that you can read violence in the Bible. If, if you been, have been reading the book of Genesis, uh, you would not be surprised to read when, uh, when God sent flood and drowned all the, the entire civilization. Only eight people survived. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. It, it should not be hard to understand why God is telling this if you have read the story about Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities, the entire population of those two cities were annihilated and torched. So this should not be hard. But who is this Amalek? The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, which means the Amalekites are distant relatives of the Israelites. And yet after God released them from Egypt, when they, were crossed, they have crossed the Red Sea, the Amalekites opposed the Israelites, and they attacked the entire nation of Israel. And so this is payback time. What's interesting here is that God waited for almost 400 years before he punished the Amalekites because the attack happened 
on the, uh, on the way to the wilderness. And then you have 40 years, and then you have the 400 years of the judges, and now this is Saul. That means for more than 400 years, God waited, gave the Amalekites time to repent, and they did not. And so at this point, this is payback time. God is exacting punishment on the whole nation of the Amalekites. But what's interesting here is this. When God commands Saul to annihilate the whole, the entire nation of the Amalek, he mentioned, of course, in poetry form, man, woman, child, infant, ox, and sheep, camel, and donkeys. But why is this? See, the backdrop of the story, the, the entire context of the story, is in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3 says, God talking to Abraham saying, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who bless or curse you. And so Amalek has opposed Israel. Amalek has cursed the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, God is the one who's cursing them back. So it's not that Saul was angry at the Amalek. It is God's judgment on the people, on the Amalekites. But here's the thing. When Yahweh commands Saul to execute his judgment, asking, Saul is supposed to act like his deputy. He is king, but he is king who's supposed to execute God's judgment on earth. That's his job. Now, in our modern sensitivities, verse 3 sounds harsh. Kill everyone, man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. This is not harsh. This is how God will exact his punishment. See, when you read the book of Revelation, you will also find that when Jesus comes back, he will destroy all nations. He will punish all those who have sinned. So this should not be very hard to understand. God will exact his judgment. Now, this phrase, verse 3, says, devote to destruction. Devote to destruction is a foreign term to us. But there's one word in Hebrew that defines this word. It's the word haram. Some would say harem or, you know, depending on where you're coming from. But let's make it easy on us. So the Hebrew word for this is haram. This akin to the concept of kosher. Now, we talked about this last week, kosher. Kosher pertains to the strict diet that the Jews follow. I mean, they don't just eat anything. They eat what is kosher. Kosher means there's a list of food that they can eat and a list of food that is prepared well. That means even if the food is listed, but if it's not prepared well, then it's not kosher. It's the same idea with halal. If, if, you're a, if you have a Muslim friend or a Muslim coworker, they only eat halal. There's, there's something that's kosher in it, something that's fit for consumption. So the word haram is relative to the word kosher, which means fit for use. So at this point, what this means is that the whole nation of Amalekites, together with their possessions, are not fit for use. They are haram, which means anything that is haram must be destroyed. And in this case, the entire nation of the Amalekites is haram, together with all their possessions. Haram. I can only think of uh, probably the easiest uh, illustration I can give is, is when you know, companies would recall lettuces from all the groceries because of E. coli. Have you ever heard of that? 
or an entire batch of milk products will be recalled from groceries because, again, of contamination. Uh, at this point, also, perhaps you can think of you know, this famous Bud Light, any Anheuser uh, Bush beverage that's now considered haram. No one would touch this. Go, go to Costco, it's down to $12 per box. I mean, nobody would touch it. So the concept here is that the nation of Amalekites were considered and declared to be haram, not fit for use or not fit for consumption. So God commanded Saul to treat the entire tribe of Amalek haram. Verse 7, it says, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, or Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction, that is haram, all the people with the edge of the sword. But, this is a big but, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. You see, there's a problem here. Because the command of God was very clear from the very beginning. Everything is haram, must be destroyed. And yet, Saul and the people managed to decide to spare some, the good and the worthless, they destroyed. It says, they took Agog, king, alive, but not the rest of the people. You may wonder why. Why did Saul make that decision? See, this will define what it means to follow God, and what it takes to follow God. Because the first three verses we read were clear. God determines what is haram. Now remember, this is God's judgment and punishment for the Amalekites. God is the one who makes the list. God is the one who determines who is included in the haram list. Saul is not free to decide to modify what's in the haram. God is the one who's executing judgment. On the haram. And therefore, Saul is not in liberty to spare anyone or anything. So this tells me two things about Saul. Number one, Saul overstepped his bounds. And number two, he was trying to rewrite the rules of haram. Now notice in verse 9 that it wasn't just Saul who decided on the haram, but also the people participated on the decision. Again, verse 9, it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fattened calves and the lambs, all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. But note in particular what the people spared. It's the best of the sheep, the oxen, the calves, and the lambs. Why? Because these animals are kosher. These are the animals that are allowed to be sacrificed in the tabernacle or in the temple. So the people were thinking, maybe God made the wrong call on this one. Maybe we should not kill all these. These are innocent animals. Maybe we should spare them so we can give them to God in return. But again, God is the one who made the list, not the people. And God said, these are haram. These are contaminated because these are possessions of the Amalekites. See, God has declared these as haram. And that means these are not acceptable as a sacrifice to God. But why? 
there's only one reason. These animals too, regardless whether they're healthy or not, they are contaminated and therefore they are not acceptable to God. There's one thing that we can learn from this is one, is this. God sets the rules. Our job is to follow them. Would you say amen to that? A king after God's own heart is a sort of the king or a king who follows unswervingly. There's a language in the Bible that says you should not turn to the left or to the right. That's following God. A king must not turn to the left or to the right, must not divert, must follow the Lord wholeheartedly. So I'm going to give you the first principle here. Here's the first principle. Partial obedience is disobedience. Let me say that again. Partial obedience is disobedience. In fact, this story harks back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. You know, this is a very famous story, but I always go back to it. So Adam and Eve were given one rule. There's one rule. You can eat anything from any tree except this one. One rule. And yet this couple managed to overstep their bounds and break the rule. Why? Because they thought they knew better. Because they don't want to live within God's rule. And why is this tree forbidden? It's the same concept, haram. It's not fit for use. It's not fit for consumption. And yet they wanted to live outside God's rules. There's only one word that describes this, rebellion. See, 1 Samuel chapter 15 talks about only three things. Rebellion, divination, idolatry. This one is rebellion. Let's go to verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. He said, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Let me stop there for a second. When it says, I regret that I made Saul king, it doesn't mean that God changed his mind or that God was sorry he made a mistake. This is a language of emotions. And so this is purely an emotional language that is saying God is sorry. God does not feel good about making Saul king, but he's not changing his mind. And then it says, Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Anyone here who has done that? You're so angry that you've been crying all night. I mean, Samuel cried all night. And why? Why was he crying all night? Because he was the one who anointed Saul. He was like the bishop of Canterbury. He anointed Saul. And he was so... I mean, it, it backfires on his reputation as the prophet of Israel. He anointed Saul, Saul. And he gave him instructions on what to do as king. And yet, he rebelled against God. And so he cried the whole night. In verse 12, it says, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel... That Saul came to Carmel, and behold, this is the key word here, he set up a monument for himself. Saul set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Carmel was just a town, but he managed to set up his own monument before he went to Gilgal. Gilgal is the place where he will sacrifice to God. What that means is that he prioritized himself before he even go to worship God. This tells us what kind of man is Saul. This is purely 
evil in behalf of Saul. But then you start to realize the gravity of his, his mistake in verse 12. It says, he built a monument for himself. Talk about prioritizing God. This implies one thing. He thinks that the victory was his. It's not God. He thinks that all the accolades was his, not God's. Now, while it's not wrong to celebrate victory, it is, however, wrong to claim that this was his own victory. Why? For many reasons. The land of Israel was God's land. The people of Israel was God's people. The battle against Amalekites was God's punishment against Amalekites. Saul was king because of God. So there's nothing that's about Saul. It's all about God. And therefore, erecting a monument for himself is just a monument to build his ego. It was about his ego. It's not about God. So in the morning, Samuel met with Saul. He gave him a report. He was happy and giddy. Samuel was coming, and so he gave a report. He said, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But we know what Samuel already know. See, the night before, Samuel was talking to God. And God told him, I regret Saul was king. And we know the night before that Samuel cried all night. And so coming in the morning, Saul said, I have performed all that God said. That's not true. So Samuel sarcastically said in verse 14, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And so Samuel, Saul panicked. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Are you seeing this? This is what he said. The people spared to sacrifice to the Lord. It's not even our God, it's your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Now again, the command of God was clear from the very beginning. Everything is haram. The Amalekites, the people, and their possessions were considered haram. The entire kingdom is haram. This brings us back to the story in Jericho. Remember that. See, before... When, when God told the Israelites to attack the first city, the moment they entered Canaan, was Jericho, God said, do not take any spoils. Everything belongs to God, Haram, devoted to destruction. But there's this one dude who, who took his first amendment too seriously, that he stole some of the spoils. And because of his greed, the whole nation suffered. The next battle, they failed. About 30 people died. See, this is the, the idea of violating the command of God for Haram. And the only way to repair this damage was to execute Achan or Achan because he was the one who took the spoil. Here's, here's the idea. The whole city of Jericho was considered Haram. All the spoils were considered haram. If a Khan takes some of the spoils, then he becomes contaminated. Because he's part of the nation of Israel, the whole nation of Israel were contaminated. And they were considered haram. The only way to decontaminate the whole nation of Israel is to execute the person who took the spoil. And so they stoned a Khan to death together with his family. So at this point, the whole idea is that if, if, if this is in the case of Saul, who will now be stoned to death? If 
Saul and the people spared Agag the king and the livestock who will be stoned to death. Who will suffer the consequence? Verse 18. And the Lord sent, this is Samuel talking to Saul. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. This gives you an idea that they are supposed to be haram, destroyed, consumed. And so Samuel said, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? This is very disturbing when you read this because this already happened in chapter 14, if you've been following the story. He said, Why did you pounce on the spoil? Again, the word for total destruction is haram. And why? Because according to, to verse 918, they are sinners until they are consumed. I think there's one clear mission statement here. Destroy the enemy. But I want to give special attention to verse 19. Samuel said, Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? What was he talking about? He was talking about sparing a gog and some of the spoils the oxen, the sheep, the lamb, and the livestock. He describes as pounds. Now, we already talked about this last Sunday. The word pounds. See, back in chapter 14, the army was fighting against the Philistines, and they were so hungry. And because they were so hungry, in the middle of the field, they saw livestock. And so they stopped fighting and they immediately slaughtered the animals and started eating. They gorged on the raw flesh of the animals. This was haram. God would not allow it. There's a policy in the Bible, there's a protocol in the Bible, that you have to drain all the blood. Blood is life. You cannot eat the meat with blood. This was the reason why God has rejected Saul in chapter 14. And then that word was used. The people pounced on the animals like animals. This is very interesting to say the least. Now, when I look this up in Hebrew dictionary, that word pounds was, was pointing the, the bird of prey. So when a vulture or a falcon or an eagle circles around and suddenly swoops in for a kill, that moment is called pouncing on the spoil. See, in the Old Testament context, the birds of prey are considered unclean. They're not part of kosher. A Jew cannot eat falcon, eagle, or vulture. They're unclean. So what that means is that Samuel was telling Saul that by doing so, by sparing Agag and the oxen and the sheep and the lambs, you have become unclean because you have acted like a bird of prey. Are you following this? Saul has become unclean. And if Saul is the king, he cannot be compromised. Then who is to be stoned to death? I, I think there's only one direction to this one. But what can we expect of Saul? So verse 20. In defense, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. You know, he's going to do a uh, an Adam move here. But the people took on the spoil. Yes, you know, the shift of the blame. 
But the people took on the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. See, the, the first part was correct. He went on a mission. He obeyed God. But see, the second part was a clear miss. He, he spared Agag. He spared some of the sheep and the oxen. He did not kill the rest. That's why we say partial obedience is disobedience. It's not good enough. I'm going to give you a second principle here. Sincerity is not equal to obedience. Because if obedience is an act of worship, sincerity won't be enough. Why? Because we can be totally sincere, but at the same time, we can also be sincerely wrong. God is the one who sets the rules. And God said, you have to devote everything to destruction. But then Saul said, but the people took the spoil, all those things, devoted to destruction. You see the logic here. The people took the spoil in order to sacrifice to the Lord their God. But they know in the first place that these animals are devoted to destruction. What that means is that in the head of Saul, it was very clear from the very beginning. These are not acceptable sacrifice to God. God will not accept them. And yet, he insisted on sparing this because the people wanted it. So it's either he was being pressured by the people or that he was playing his cards very well. His intention was, was right to sacrifice, but the manner of doing it was wrong. So he was sincerely wrong. And yet the whole book of Leviticus is devoted to the whole concept of offering to God. See, to understand this, we have to go back to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus has given us the concept of what is acceptable to God. The book of Leviticus lists down all the animals that are to be eaten, are to be sacrificed to the Lord. Things that should not be eaten and how they are to be prepared. Things that should be sacrificed to the Lord and how the priest should prepare the sacrifice to the Lord. The whole book of Leviticus is about the protocol of holiness. And Saul knows this. He is king. He is made aware of this because he is king. And yet he bypassed this rule for his ego. Again, sincerity is not equal to obedience. Here's the climax of the narrative, and I want to devote the remaining time on this. Verse 22, it says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And we mentioned three words, three big words that are important here. Rebellion, divination, and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. This is the last straw. This is strike three for, for Saul. Let's talk about first about divination. Let me quote Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10 to, through 12. Deuteronomy said, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. There's a movie, uh, it's Indiana Jones, where there's a, a scene where a child is being offered to a god or an idol. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead 
For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. This is another word for haram, abomination. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. The reason why there's so much violence in the book of Joshua while the people were tasked to drive out the inhabitants of the land because they have become an abomination to God. They have practiced what they should not have been practicing. All these things. And all these things have one thing in common. That is consulting the spirits or powers on the other side and asking for information either about the future or something secret. See, all this is about communicating to the spirits in the other world. We're not allowed to do that. The scriptures say this is an abomination. This is haram. This is not fit for use. See, one of the reasons why God executed judgment on the Canaanites was because they have polluted the land. They have erected altars and idols in every place in Canaan. So the rule of the Israelites when they entered the promised land was to clean the whole land, to make it really holy, to decontaminate the land, to destroy all the altars. That was their job. The reason why God was was telling them to destroy so that they won't use the same altars the Canaanites used in communicating with the spirits. Now, when we talk about divination... It can be in many forms. It can be a form of opening an animal and looking at the entrails, looking at you know, the, the liver and, and the lungs and their positioning. And they, they can, some shamans, have powers to know the future. It, it's also, uh, in Rome, it's, they call it augury. It's the movement of the birds in the sky. Well, modern people like us, and you know, even though we're modern, we believe in astrology. Anyone knows this? Anyone has read about your future through horoscope and zodiac signs? This is practically divination. If you want to know about the future and you look to those things, this is divination. What's the danger here? The danger of divination is that it opens the line of communication between you and the spirit world. And when you do that, when you open the line of communication, there's a possibility of demon possession, especially if you're not a Christian. See, that's, that's a problem. Have you ever wondered why some people can see spirits? They call this the third eye. See, they don't have the ability to do so. The spirits allow themselves to be seen. Why? Because the line of communication is already open. This is through divination. Now, I'm not interested in what they see. I'm interested in the idea of the access to the spirit world. And the Bible gives us plenty of examples. This is a gateway to demon possession. At the very end of 1 Samuel, Saul will consult a necromancer. Because Samuel already died and he wants to talk to Samuel, the necromancer will bring Samuel back to the dead. This practice, according to the Bible, is abomination to the Lord. Any contact with the people who practice divination, fortune-telling, palm-reading, voodoo, people who communicate with the dead, those who use crystal and sage, any contact or consultation with these practitioners are considered dangerous and an abomination to God. See, the real problem of divination is the act of communicating directly with spirits. We are forbidden to do that. 
why do people want to communicate? Is that so that they can use the powers, so that they can know the secret knowledge. Let me give you something to think about. If you think that Adam and Eve, their sin was as simple as eating of the fruit, you're wrong. The idea is that the serpent came and talked to them about a knowledge that they want to know. See, if you eat this fruit, you will know what is good and what is evil. So when they decided to eat of the fruit, it's not the fruit, it's, it's the knowledge that they want to see, the knowledge that they want to know. So it's practically divination. What does the Bible say about secret things? Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What I say in the beginning, we do not know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. That's what's more important. So I, I don't know what's going to happen to you exactly 10 years from now. See, these are... These are one of the reasons why people go to palm readers, they ask for their future. They ask for what's going to happen to them five years from now or ten years from now. Those are secret things. And the palm readers are, are either guessing or contacting spirits to tell them, to tell you what may happen to you. There's no guarantee at all on this. But you see, it opens the spirit world. What about idolatry? This is not as simple as you may think. We have to think in, in, in terms of like how the ancient Israelites think. When an ancient person looks at the world and sees something supernatural or encounters spirit, he makes an idol because he wants to, to have that idol available 24-7. So he makes an idol in a fashion of wood or stone or brick, and then he does all the ceremonies that are related to inviting the spirit to come into that idol. The idol becomes the house. It becomes the residence of the spirit. So that when he worships, sacrifice, offers anything, the spirit gives him what he wants, powers or any secret knowledge. This is the whole idea of idolatry. And the Bible also calls idolatry an abomination to God. See, the goal of the one who worships an idol is to harness the power of an idol. It's not that he worships the idol. It's not, it's not because he wants to honor the idol. It's because he wants something from the idol, the power for whatever that is. Idolatry is technically a divination with a twist. The reason why idolatry is forbidden in the Ten Commandments it is because it's an abomination to God. And people who engage in idolatry become unclean. And therefore, the Israelites are not meant to practice these things. Why? Because they are called to be holy, a chosen people, a chosen generation, holy unto God. Their mission was to drive out the inhabitants of the land, to clean the land from pollution. And therefore, idols and the practice of divination pollutes the land. Canaan was chosen by God to become his sacred space. The temple is to become the center of sacred space. That's why the temple is called the Holy of Holies. That's also the reason why Jesus drove out the money changers inside the temple. See, in the latter part of Deuteronomy, Moses addressed the people for the last time before he was taken by God. 
and he wrote a well-written song. This song contains a citation of idolatry. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 16. It says, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed the demons that were no gods to gods they have never known, to new gods that have become come recently, whom your fathers have never dreaded. Moses was talking to the people after 40 years in the wilderness, and he's saying, you have rebelled against the Lord. You have sacrificed the demons, the lesser gods. See, there's only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one God. There's no other God. Yahweh is unique among all the gods. So basically, idolatry is divination. It's about consulting the demons, and the spirits. Idolatry is fundamentally rebellion against the Lord. So rebellion, divination, and idolatry are all in one basket. It's all saying, I don't want to live my life the way God wants it. I don't want to live within God's rules. I want to live my life the way I want. Rebellion, divination, idolatry. So as a consequence of this rebellion, God rejected Saul as king because Saul rejected God. And when the chapter ends, King Agag was presented to Samuel, and Samuel, in a purely symbolic manner, asked Agag in front of him, and he took back the kingship from Saul, and he slew Agag. This is what it says in verse 33. This is R18, by the way. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. What does that picture give you? I mean, Agag was like a meat offering before God. He was hacked to pieces. I can only think of Kill Bill at this point. Because that, that was the closest probably, oh, you know, blood spilling everywhere. I mean, Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. See, if there's anything we can learn from this or any encouragement that we can gather from this narrative is this. That we who claim to be followers of Jesus must make up our minds if we decide that we're going to obey. Because God requires absolute obedience. Not just Sundays, all days. Not just, not just part of you, but all of you. See, obedience in all areas of our lives, or it's nothing at all. It's all or nothing. And here's the warning. To those who rebel, to those who prioritize their lives outside of God's rules, to those who enjoy momentary pleasure because it feels good, the message is clear. To those who reject God, God will also reject. The message of God is surrender. Surrender is not a one-time thing. Surrender must become a way of life. Surrender is something that we must do every day. What did Jesus say? If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily, that's the emphasis, daily, and follow me. Because surrender must happen daily. See, the only way we can become a man or woman after God's own heart is if we first surrender. Christianity is nothing but lip service without surrender. Worship is nothing but 
ritual without surrender. Faith is nothing but sentimentality without surrender. Surrender is the first act of faith. It is at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ that we give our lives, bend the knee, and surrender. That's why Paul said, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Here's the thing. If Jesus Christ is not Lord at all, He is not Lord of all. Every knee must bow down to Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation will finish with one thing. Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When I was watching the coronation of King Charles, I'm reminded who is really in charge. It's not King Charles. It's not the presidents of every country. It's Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if we acknowledge that Jesus Christ indeed is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, there's no other response but to surrender to His Lordship. That's why the Romans call Him Dominus. All the emperors in Rome were called Dominus, Lord. He's the ultimate Lord of all. But you may ask, what am I going to surrender? See, there are portions in in our lives that sometimes we forget that are not surrendered to God. Maybe there's some hatred in our lives that we have not fully surrendered to God. Maybe there's some person I cannot forgive. I know I want to surrender to God, but I cannot forgive this person. This is something to surrender to God. Maybe we have not fully surrendered our faith in God. Maybe I'm, I'm trusting myself or any other person for my future. We have also to surrender to God. Maybe there's some worry that I'm always worried. I know I can do this, but I know I cannot. But this is also a part of what we can surrender to God. There are many things that we can surrender to God. As we sing this last song, Surrender, I want to invite you to pray and sing this song, Surrender to God, because surrender is the first act of faith. So I mean prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we confess that sometimes we rely on ourselves, we don't fully surrender our lives, and we... We live our lives the way we want. And there are many times that when we do this, we sin against you. You are not impressed. You are not pleased. And so we confess, Father, that we have sinned against you. We want to be a man after God's own heart. We want to be like David, someone who will follow you unswervingly. And as we do that, Father, we pray that you will help us to surrender And so we acknowledge, Lord, that you are Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And so in your throne, with our knees, we bow and we surrender. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.